time to create a new crease in your Bible. Uh, Many of you may have your Bibles falling open to the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're going to to start a new study in the book of Acts uh, this morning. And as many of you know, but I'll just remind us, this is the second book in Luke's two-part history of Jesus to the date that he knew it. Uh, The author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts is very purposeful in describing what he is doing. He is writing an account, a history, of what Jesus began to do. First, what Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke. And then he's very clear, as we'll see opening up the book of Acts, about what Jesus and the Holy Spirit continue to do. This is, as Luke understands it, a clear description in history of the ministry of Jesus and what it means for the world. It's largely, uh, because it's a history, a little bit dangerous for us to too often try and take certain parts of this text and create it to be normative. There are a lot of odd things that happen in Acts. There are some things where some people have received the baptism of John but haven't received the Holy Spirit. And there's some oddities in this early transition of the church that are not going to be repeated throughout church history. But at the same time, even as we have the opportunity to see in history how the resurrection and Pentecost begin to change the very nature of God's community in the world and how it expands both to Jew and Gentile, not just in Palestine, but around the entire known Roman world and eventually the globe itself. That we do see the same truths, the same realities preached in the Gospels, lived out in Acts, that we ourselves today are called to embody in the history in which we live. Because what does not change is the richness and the truth of the kingdom of God applied in every culture, transforming and affirming the humanity in it. And so I want us to, as we reflect on the book of Acts, see it as a wonderful picture in the reality of history, of God's work, and therefore encouraging us that in history, And in our lives and in our day and age, the same realities of the Spirit-filled life walking in line with our Savior can and does bring salt and light and the gospel and life into this world. That there is great hope for the kingdom and great power in the kingdom and great transformation for all who experience it. Let's put the text in front of us this morning. We're just reading three verses Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over the period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. 
Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you to enliven us, to open our eyes and our ears to the truths of the gospel, the truths of the kingdom, the truths of who we are. We pray this morning that you would again continue to enliven us to those truths, that your people would be built up. And Lord, anything that is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. A history is by definition the selection of certain points and certain events. It can never be complete. A history is also prone to interpretation. And as we look back on ancient history, the temptation is to always read our own experiences into the midst of that. It's called historiography, the the ability to, in ever greater degrees, make your own presuppositions and biases known to yourself as you engage with the past. So that as you present history, you can do so in a way that at the very least allows the reader to understand your bias. And Luke has a bias. Luke has a clear bias. He is not just telling the story of a few people on holiday throughout the Roman Empire, sharing interesting philosophies and ideas with random people. Paul, uh, Luke has a very clear agenda as he lays it out in these opening verses to explain what Jesus is doing, to present clearly what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing in bringing the kingdom of God forward. And in some of his stories, he's going to show us examples of people trying to do things in their own way, and how God either doesn't honor or does something completely different. He's going to show stories in which the very leaders of the church are challenged with the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit transforming their own understandings of what the kingdom looks like. We often think, or it's presented, or probably I've said it, that first century Jews had a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. That the reason they didn't understand what Jesus was doing is that they expected and had in their minds that Jesus or that the Messiah would come and free them from the Romans. And of course what Jesus does is free them from something even bigger and greater which is sin and death. Here's the challenge. If we push that argument too far, and if I push that argument too far, I apologize, because the danger of that is that we make the kingdom of God something that is spiritual and ethereal and not of this world. As if somehow the Pharisees got it completely wrong. They didn't. There is a reality in which everything that Jesus does assures us that what he is doing is the reuniting of the spiritual and the physical. That this world does matter, therefore healing people does matter, therefore throwing out demons does matter, therefore feeding people does matter. The kingdom of God is no less than the throwing off of evil than it is the power to transform individual hearts. And actually, it turns out that the Pharisees weren't wrong that Jesus' ministry would eventually bring the end of the Roman Empire. 
happened to be 300 years later than they thought. Their dates were wrong, which we'll talk about in a minute. But nonetheless, the kingdom of God completely upsets the entire Roman Empire to such a degree that Augustine, sorry, Constantine, I forget my own name, Constantine sees it as politically expedient, not to say that his own heart wasn't converted, to align himself with Christianity 320 years after. We take over the Roman Empire without ever picking up a sword. The notion that the kingdom of God is somehow only spiritual and not material doesn't line up with the actual implications of the gospel in societies and cultures. Should we grasp for worldly power? Absolutely not. Should we seek to take over political entities in a way that creates theocracies? Absolutely not. Should we take confidence that the kingdom of God is not merely spiritual but physical? That it does have implications in this world because this world is where Christ is returning. So we look at this text this morning and I want to reflect briefly on just a couple of points about what Jesus has begun. Right? The sermon series, the sermon title is What Jesus Began. What did he begin? In history, he began to do certain things. So what did, we, what did he do? Well, my encouragement is let's go back to Luke chapter 4. This is where Jesus initially starts his own ministry. Up until chapter 4, it's uh, Jesus' birth and his narrative and stories about John the Baptist. So what happens in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus himself starts to do stuff? Well, he goes out into the wilderness and he undoes two things. He undoes Adam's failure and he undoes the failure of Israel in the desert. He does not give in to the temptations that Adam and Eve gave into. He does not seek to use his own power for his own glory. He completely submits himself to the will of the Father. Therefore, it is the Father's kingdom that is coming, not Jesus' kingdom, and he submits. He spends 40 days in the wilderness trusting and following his Father despite being tempted to use all that he has to either doubt the goodness of God or to usurp God's goodness, uh, usurp God's power by using his gifts to supply for himself. And so, unlike Israel, he doesn't end up complaining in the desert of his difficulties, doesn't end up denying the faithfulness of God, but he, in a very short period of time, but in a powerful way, Luke says, Jesus starts his ministry by not giving in to the temptations of Adam and Eve, and by completing the trip through the wilderness and into the promised land without the failures of Israel. And then he walks into the land and he opens up his ministry in his own hometown of Nazareth. And like every prophet, things go badly. But what does he proclaim in his sermon from the text in Isaiah? That there are real concrete things that are going to happen. The oppressed will no longer be oppressed. Prisoners are going to be set free. Real, actual, ethical, moral, in the material world, concrete things that are worth doing. And Jesus says, the kid news of the kingdom is here because this stuff is going to change. 
He moves on from that sermon, which, like I said, does not, is not genuinely received well, to do spiritual battle. Because the line between the spiritual and the physical that you and I focus on, and especially after recent historical arguments about the Bible, we tend to draw a strong distinction between the spiritual and the physical. Luke is perfectly happy to talk about what Jesus is doing in the physical world and also to engage in the discussion about that there are spiritual battles. We just went through this in the end of Ephesians. There are real princes and princes and paladies. Trying to say too many words at once. And in the midst of that, we need to be cognizant that there is a real spiritual battle going on and that evil, a spiritual force, has physical manifestations. And if we only see the physical side, we're denying the deeper realities. And if we only see a spiritual side and deny the physical, we're denying most of what Jesus does in his ministry in restoring a broken and fallen world. And so Luke is happy to say Jesus preaches this amazing sermon about freedom and about freedom from oppression. And of course that means the end of evil and so he throws out a demon. And then he heals many. And so here we have in Jesus' ministry a powerful reminder that he is going to undo all of the broken history that's gone before. That he is now declaring that in his ministry the freedoms that have always been promised are going to be unleashed in the world and they have two principal locales. It is the spiritual world and he has power there and it is the physical world and he has power there and the kingdom moves forward. Jesus began his ministry that way. Luke is reminding us that what Jesus is beginning in his first acts in Luke 4 are going to be repeated in his continued work through his apostles by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we see? We see amazing sermons by Peter on Pentecost. We'll look at those in the weeks to come. We also see healing of people that Jesus apparently walked by. Right? But his healing was meant for another day to show the ongoing power of Jesus. Healing people at the temple. Jesus' work continued and preached. And everywhere the gospel goes, we see both physical and spiritual manifestations to such a degree that we are really supposed to begin to realize that this feeling you and I have of being divided soul and body is something that Jesus came to heal. And we will never be able to understand what Luke is doing in the Gospels or what Jesus is trying to say is if we go all physical. It's just some philosophical idea to help making life in this world more bearable. And we should just be nice to one another with no spiritual ramifications. And there is a temptation in our own philosophy today to go in that direction. And that is ill-advised. And it's certainly not what Luke is after. But there's also another tendency because in certain ways we feel like maybe the gospel and the kingdom haven't progressed as far as they could or should have in the last 2,000 years. And so we go to the spiritual. And we want to escape into a spiritual bliss someplace else. And hope that that's what our, ex, uh, that that's what our Savior will do is bring us to a place where we get to leave. So we begin to see what Jesus does in Luke 4. 
The second part of what we read here in Acts is that what Jesus began to teach. Jesus teaches the restoration of the world. He teaches a deeper understanding of the law. That it is not a merely an external following of the law, but a changing of one's heart. It is a changing of one's view of the other. And a changing of view of what God is doing in and through the world. It is a teaching that restores the image of God to all of humanity. One of the great truths of Scripture is that the divine joined itself to the material world, which is a kick in the teeth to Plato. Plato can't imagine that that which is pure, that which is the form itself, could ever join itself to that which is broken and fallen and distorted. And yet Jesus does. And he endures some of the consequences of the fall. He's tired. He experiences physical needs of hunger. Though he is without sin, there's no indication that his body was without pain. That he didn't experience the soreness of feet from walking, let alone the scourges and what happens in his passion. He felt the brokenness of this world. And he teaches, therefore, the value of it in his words and in his actions. He tells us that he's coming back. And this is so key. There are a lot of bad hymns. We sing them. I don't know how to go back through with Anna and edit them. But way too many of our hymns talk about the joy of getting out of here. Take us to heaven. One of my favorite songs on Jordan's stormy banks. What do I do? I cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie as if somehow there is some place other, some new creation that is going to be different than this rock that I'm going to escape to when Jesus returns. That's not Luke's history. There's nothing that would encourage us with that idea. Jesus is going to return because he spent 33 years showing us, and particularly three years in specific, that this place matters, that you matter, that the brokenness here matters, that it's worth restoring and rebuilding and renewing. And though some of us will rest and sleep before his return, we will awaken to this world renewed, not someplace else. You remember the story of Canaan. This is me trying to justify why we'll sing on Jordan's stormy banks in the future. But remember what God does. God creates a people in Abraham. And he sends them to a real place. I will say he sends them to Canaan. Sends them to a garden. It's a retelling of the story of Genesis. They live there for many generations. They leave. They're in slavery and bondage and they go home again. But where is that? It's a place in this world. It is the promise of the renewal of the garden. The renewal of this place. The new heavens and the new earth come down here. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the beautiful city where it comes here. 
that gives value to what you and I do this side of glory. It gives value to the material world because the Creator built it and is about to restore it. And Acts doesn't make sense if this world is meaningless and that all we're trying to do is escape it. Paul's ministry makes no sense. The challenges to Peter's understanding of what the Jewish faith was supposed to mean as he is re-instructed by his Savior. Jesus continues to teach Peter even after he ascends. But what it means to embrace this world in the way that the Father and the Son embrace this world. We will not fully grasp the richness of Acts if we do not embrace both the spiritual and the physical realities that God is making all things whole again. Whole. Perfect unity. Perfect restructuring of the spiritual and the physical world. The domain in which God lives becomes the domain in which humanity is welcomed in. Heaven comes here. The place where God dwells comes here, which does mean there's going to be major renovations given what we've done to the place. But he comes here. We're not going anywhere. Which then makes Paul's discussion of the armor of God a lot more coherent, riffing off of our last sermon series. Therefore, stand. And when you've done everything else, stand. In the place where God places you, living out the kingdom, being a conduit for what Jesus began to do and continues to do through the Holy Spirit in both his teaching and his actions. And it will transform the world. No, not on our time frame. Yes, there will be times of setback. We feel that in any generation that the kingdom is not quite strong enough. But Luke is going to show us through persecution and great success, through failure and great promise, that the Lord continues to work. My question to you this morning as we wrap up is where are those areas where you both see the need for that healing of the material and the spiritual world? What ways You fear that the kingdom may not be strong enough this side of glory to do what it's called to do. And how you might reinvent, reimagine your life as a means by which the Jesus of Luke 4 and the rest of the Gospels becomes the Jesus in your heart and the Holy Spirit's charge and strengthening to all of us to continue to participate with him in what he's doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we start this study in Acts, we would be encouraged and challenged and dwelling richly in the unconditional love of our Lord. Lord, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for the power of life. And we pray that we would delight in it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
the ushers would come forward at this time will take up the ties and offerings again an opportunity